Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Hello, Namarani, Agsa, Ghana, Yatanga, Yoanti. Agsa stands on Ghana land and we're thrilled to be joining you tonight and to be hosting this talk on the lands of the traditional elders of the Adelaide Plains and to pay our respects to elders past, present and those emerging. My name's Lee Robb, I'm the curator of contemporary art here and I'm thrilled to be joined tonight here by Lucas Kroll. Many of you might know Lucas through his work. He's an incredible artist. He studied at the studied printmaking, a Bachelor of Visual Arts at UniSA, before being lured to London to complete his master's in printmaking at the Royal College of the Arts. Only recently came back in, in December, back to his hometown of Adelaide. You might know some of his work from seeing it uh, around the city. He's been commissioned to do a number of murals which explore in incredible sort of geometric patterns and idiosyncratic and experimental printmaking at a large scale. Would you say that's an accurate summary? Sure, sure. I'll take it. <laughs> uh, thrilled that we could be joined with Lucas, an artist, a curator and an academic, to explore some of the incredible Australian and international artists that make up up this display which is titled Dark Matter, Bright Light. Often exhibitions are, I guess, driven or inspired uh, by, by a single work and then lead into uh, a, whole, a whole other area of pursuit. And this particular work by Olafur Eliasson entitled Dark Matter Collective is a recent and significant acquisition for the Art Gallery of South Australia. And so with this in mind, this is where the title came from, Dark Matter, Bright Light, for this display, uh, which brings together artists that have over a 50 year period. So tonight, Lucas and I are going to traverse 50 years of, uh, of practice, which really go back to abstraction investigations in modernism through conceptual and experimental work, touching on minimalism through to some of the more ambitious and epic undertakings of recent contemporary artists. A lot of the artists in this display are joined or bound in, in the pursuit of the optical, interested in the mechanics of vision, but also through to our concepts of perception, the agency of the viewer, but also some of the artists are also harnessing sublime natural elements like air, fire or electricity to create their works. Some of the artists are also fundamentally investigated, interested in investigating those dichotomies of light and dark, of shadow play, but also of mass, gravity and weightlessness. So we'll explore some of these concepts uh, through this uh, incredible grouping of artists. But we thought that we would also dovetail and look at the conversation between some of the pioneers, incredible uh, international pioneers of art, and move through to some of the contemporary visionaries to look at this collection of luminaries. And we thought we'd start with Joseph Albers, a pioneer of the Bauhaus. And I'm going to hand over to Lucas. Sure, thanks, Lee. So, Joseph Albers, I know it's, it's in a difficult spot to see, but if, if you'll perhaps turn your heads to see up there, uh, his incredible screen print, IS Yellow, which is 
part of a larger 25-year uh, period of his career where he created hundreds of iterations of the same work uh, in different colour schemes to produce different optical effects. Joseph Albers is often thought of as being the father of modernism. He worked as, he's from Weimar in, in Germany, he was born in 1888, and he worked as an artist and an educator at the, as Lee mentioned, the progressive Bauhaus school in Weimar. The, the ethos of the Bauhaus school was very much about a positivistic belief in the machine under the influence of its founder, Walter Gropius. So Gropius was interested in breaking down what he saw as the artificial distinctions between art, design, craft, and architecture. Instead of having separate departments at the school, he had everyone working in the same workshop, which is really quite similar to how the workshop of Olifer Eliasson works. So, so there's the link there. So we're going to go, as Lee mentioned, on, on a 50-year journey from the creation of Albers' screen print to, to the incredible Dark Matter Collective uh, by Olifer Eliasson. So um, I think before we move on, there are two key influences on Joseph Albers that I think are really worth touching on at this point. One is Cubism. Cubism was a movement that wanted to move away from the illusionistic laws of perspective that had held sway in Western painting since the Renaissance and instead wanted to embrace the two-dimensional surface of the canvas. So the, the truth to materials, which we will see is um, an ongoing theme of the work in the show, and the second notable influence is the ideas of the uh, Dutch distill group, who were also not so interested in capturing illusionistic uh, representations, but instead were interested in discovering or uncovering, I should say, underlying truths of the universe, of the structure of the universe. So artists are always in pursuit of the implausible, so a really simple undertaking, you know, to, uh, to give shape or form to the underlying structure of the universe. Mm. So that was the, the pursuit of the, the, the Bauhaus and, you know, something that Joseph Albers, you know, rigidly stuck to 25 years of his homage to the square, these concentric squares and this pattern that he returned to again and again in that sort of geometric attempt at, at giving some structure to the underlying rhythms of the, the universe, I guess. Yeah. And so on that note, I think we'll, we'll move on to the next work, which is on the opposite wall, Gilbert and George's Dark, Dark Shadow, Shadow number, number nine. nine. That's the one. Which is a collection of 19 silver gelatin photographs arranged in a mirrored sequence that represents the, the British art duo's response to 
Ehrmann Rorschach's famous psychological test of, of ink splatters. Now the work was created uh, from a larger collection of photographs that accompanied a, their famous text, uh, Dark Shadow, which is an eight-part series of cerebral prose uh, written by the duo in uh, a period from 1971 to 74. It, it's intended to depict drunkenness. So the, the, its relevance to the, the show tonight is that they are tackling something that is essentially unknowable in a sober state. So where uh, they're, they're, we're thinking about dichotomies of states of mind and alternate realities. Gilbert and George, are, they coined the terms art for all and living sculpture to represent a form of art that was uh, meant to be universally approachable. They, they were interested in the, the language of Gilbert and George, I should say, is very fluid and they were interested in moving away from forms of language that were exclusive and afforded uh, yeah, exclusivity through decadent language, shall we say. Yeah, yeah. I think with uh, the Gilbert and George, it's a sort of, I guess it's, a, it's quite a poetic you know, segue into some of the other works in, in, in this installation. But we also wanted to bring together the, I guess, some of the, the pioneers of different movements and also very experimental and often very utopic and social visions around the role of the artist in society. And um, so that's a sort of nice touchstone from Albers to Gilbert and George, who from when they started studying together as students in the early, 19, early to mid-1960s, they decided that they would become inseparable, their lives would be inseparable from their art. And so all of the works that they made, they called uh, living sculptures, and they've done this till today. They're, you know, they've been rigorous, relentless in that pursuit of always making works together under the name of Gilbert and George, and continue to be leading photographers as well. So even using the, the sort of, the idea of the raw shark, a sort of mirror image as well. And so, you know, the way that those 19 photographs are displayed is that they're displayed in, in a sort of mirrored image around around the central motifs and you know their drunken sculptures reflect these moments of dishevelry which is you know at odds to with their uh, incredible perfect suits and in a way the, the sort of looking into their half-filled or spilt glasses of gin is in a way a journey into into their universe so uh, another sort of alternative reality in a way but also a really really significant photograph that we can't always put on display which is the nature of photography it um, it needs to be protected from light so this will only be up for um, another another month and then it will probably be put to rest and in the under the cover of darkness for about another five years so do spend a lot of time with it and also it's been shown in all of their significant major solo shows at the Tate and at MoMA it's been lent and it has traveled all over over the world as one of their iconic images. So, um, you know, a nice uh, look at those, you know, really early pioneers and radical experimenters. Mm. 
and Lee just mentioned that they famously are very, very neat and uh, almost comically habitual in their lives. So the, the two famously eat breakfast at the same cafe every day on their identical route to their studio and then have uh, dinner at the exact same restaurant every night. And uh, I was once actually told a story by someone who went to a party at their house who said that when they opened the fridge, there was nothing but verve in, in the fridge. <laughs> so, but as someone who lived in London, I can tell you that eating at the same cafe every day and having nothing but alcohol in your fridge is not actually that out of the ordinary for a Londoner. No, that was my London student experience oh, as well. Oh, did I just step up? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But looking at uh, these radical moments that were happening at the same time, so we're looking at Joseph Albers, who was in Weimar in Germany, but then became a professor at Yale University in the 1960s, and then so was based in the US, to Nalini Milani, who is a pioneering Indian artist known for her photography, her experimental video, but also through her paintings and her drawings and her animations. And these are new works that have just come into the collection only a few months ago. And Nalini Milani, also incredibly international, very intellectual and also utopian in her early pursuits. She, um, these are some of her very earliest works. They were first made in 1970. They were shown in Bombay in 1970, just before she went to Paris and studied in Paris for two years and was part of an experimental, the Vision Experimental Exchange, which were artists experimenting with both photography and video in Paris in the 1970s. It was also post-1968, an incredibly charged political time, and that time in Paris has gone on to, um, to influence her, her work, which is, which is also very, very political. She's been working for 50 years, and um, these show some of her, and she's been, you know, incredibly and relentlessly experimental in her practice. But what I love about these works, simply called Untitled One and Two, and from a series that, that she made in 1970s, that she only found the, the prints for a couple of years ago. And, um, and, so these, and so she was able to actually see them again at this scale. She hadn't seen them since 1970 herself. So these come from the past, from 50 years ago, and she was able to reprint them. But again, that sort of investigation, which is both repetitive and experimental at the same time, dealing with light and shadow, depth of field. Um, these works are made, they're, they're called photograms, so they're cameraless cameraless photographs, we, we call them, so without the use of the lens. Instead, she's used the photographic enlarger and has hovered um, different cut-out, paper cut-out shapes underneath and on top of the light-sensitive photographic paper in, in the darkroom. And the different times that she would, you know, that, that she would leave those, um, those, those paper cutouts on the paper, determine how light or dark the, the exposure is around them, and also she would continuously move them while that exposure was happening, while the light from the enlarger was uh, exposing the light-sensitive paper. And so that's how you get this incredible sort of rhythm, this sense of movement. I call them sort of proto-cinematic because they, they give you that sense of almost being very filmic or very cinematic and having a lot of 
of dynamism and movement there. And you can see that, you know, those, those sort of experiments before she started using Super 8 cameras after that and then moving into video and, and now recently animation. So she's always been ahead of the curve with technology over all of these years. And, you know, it's thanks to our director, Rana Devonport, who has nearly a 30-year history of working with Nalini Milani that these have come here and it's part of much larger collection of works that we've recently brought into the collection. So we look forward to sharing more of her incredible pioneering work and we're very lucky to have these here in the Art Gallery of South Australia. But an interesting link between Nalini Milani and Joseph Albers is that she was heavily influenced by the Hungarian artist Laszlo Moholy-Nagy, and he was an incredible experimenter with light and making these kinetic light works, but also a lot of photograms as well. There was a terrific show a few years ago, well, I guess it was now over 10 years ago at the Tate, which was Laszlo moholy and Joseph Albers. And if you ever get a chance to look at that publication or just look at the show online, you'll see this, um, you know, the relationship. Both of them worked at the Bauhaus School for a period of five years, moholy and Joseph Albers, and had a big impact on each other. So you're sort of seeing the reach of, of modernism and the Bauhaus, which persists today, which is probably a nice segue to Oliver Lesson. What do you reckon? Yeah, or did you want to touch on the Sugi? Oh, yes, thank you. That was the order of things, thank you. Um, yeah, but we're just defying the natural order of things here tonight, so that's uh, in keeping with the artist's pursuits. So, um, but talking about, you know, cameraless photography um, and the relationship between light and, uh, and dark and imagery, the work behind you on the, on the wall there by Hiroshi Sugimoto is called Lightning Fields. It's made... What is very interesting about this work and what I remember seeing them many years ago when they were shown in a Sydney Biennale and it was in a completely darkened room and there were a number of these what appear like lightning flashes. And at that point, I thought they had been made, they were images of lightning in the natural world. I thought that they were taken in situ, on plein air, so to speak, outdoors. But actually, what makes these so amazing is that they're actually an image of electricity. So seven years of super dangerous experimentation, Sugimoto, decided, well, he wanted to image electricity itself. He used the Van de Graaff generator, which is actually meant to, intended to be a particle generator, but he used it to discharge 400,000 volts of electricity through and onto the photographic paper. So imagine a photographic bath with um, the paper in it and he's uh, with the light sensitive photographic paper and then he's run the current through it. So it's actually the current moving through and fixing itself to the surface of the paper that creates these works. So I mean, totally dangerous and he said that he did nearly kill himself twice. And so, you know, when artists are in, in pursuit of implausible, impossible and dangerous ideas, this is really an image of that. So um, he sort of likens it to creating a, a, a storm in his darkroom and creating the conditions of weather in his darkroom to be able to, to make this work. And Sugimoto, he works 
in continuous series, and so you'll, you'll know other images of his, which from his early images of uh, seascapes and these sort of diffuse horizons over and over again, that moment where the sea disappears into the sky, or his theatre works where he wanted to capture an entire movie in a single frame. And so what he would do would set up his camera in beautiful cinemas all around the world. He would press the shutter at the very start of the film and then wait and leave it to capture the entire film and then press stop at the end. And that would capture the entire film. So a movie in a single frame, which meant that it would be entirely overexposed and it's a single white bright square in the middle of the image. So they're very beautiful, iconic images if you get a chance to look at these. But these are his most recent experiments and um, we're hoping to bring that work into the collection and it'll be our first Sugimoto in the collection and the only example of this work in the country. So magic, really. But thinking about harnessing the weather and natural phenomena, Lindy Lee has obviously done the same uh, with her work here, Fire Over Heaven. I see this as a sketch or a study for the work that you will all know very well, The Life of Stars, which is the, the, the mirrored beacon at the front of the art gallery. Lindy Lee is an artist, an Australian Chinese artist who came to fame in the 1980s really for a lot of postmodern um, appropriation experiments interested in the European canon. But then she went back to China, spent a lot of time there in the 90s and reconnected with her Chinese heritage and became a Buddhist scholar. In that time, she, you know, and she's really used that both as a methodology and materiality in her work, um, the, the learnings, the lessons, the processes of, um, of Zen Buddhism. And this particular work is like a drawing or a study for the work on, on North Terrace, Life of Stars, because she makes it with, with this, she's basically using fire and burning holes meticulously and repeatedly, but under a meditative state to then create these holes that, that you know, punctuate and perforate the surface of the, of the paper. And then even here you can sort of see the shadow play at the bottom, which is sort of like being inside the life of stars maybe. And um, in a way she, she connects it to the idea of Indra's net, this sort of cosmic matrix, the idea that we're all connected to each other and that every individual is almost Represented by every dot in the in the surface of that of that page, um, like a like jewels connecting um, in a in a in a cosmic matrix. Artists harnessing natural elements brings us, I guess, to um, and natural forces brings us to Olafur Eliasson. He made his name in 2003 when he was given one of the very early commissions for the Tate Turbine Hall. He mirrored the entire ceiling of the turbine hall and he, with 2,000 lights, and created a giant sun and the rest of the entire space is darkened just with a soft mist that would sort of push through the space. And I remember um, I was studying in London at the time. It was winter. He specifically put this on in winter, which you really need when the sun sets at about 3.30 p.m. in London. And it was an incredible piece. It was called The Weather Project, where he basically wanted to create that feeling of you know, sun setting and the warmth of that sun. And uh, it was amazing. You would go in every day, uh, or at 
yeah, I was a geek. I did go in every day for a while. And there would be people, and everyone would be sitting on the floor, you know. It just became this incredible social space as well, where he was really like Sugimoto, trying to reenact the weather or a sunset within the, within the Tate Turbine Hall. And Oliver Eliasson has been... He's an environmentalist, he's an activist, and he is Icelandic, but was based in Icelandic Danish, but has been based in Berlin for over, well, about 25 years now. And I remember visiting his studio, and you know, his studio has three times as many staff as we do here at the art gallery. <laughs> he has about two, 200 odd um, staff, which is made up of artists, of engineers, of designers, architects, and thinkers and philosophers. So there's a wonderful connection to, say, Joseph Albers and the Bauhaus, which was a sort of utopian space, and Oliver Eliasson is, I guess, a 21st century example of, you know, sort of the, the Bauhaus school, and, and so that's how he can make these incredible works. And Dark Matter Collective is made up of 217 solid glass spheres, which are slightly mirrored on the back, but then painted over in matte black at the back. Uh, weighs over 400 kilos. So we had to engineer a whole wall just so it could hold this incredible work. But it is a feat of engineering. It draws on the lessons of, of science, but it also charts back to the very beginning of mirrors and artists using mirrors as optical aids and devices to create works, to, um, to figure out perspective. And then he even moves into a space of dark matter, which, you know, is all consuming. So now we're gonna go really far out there. <laughs> if you're ready. Right, oh, we'll try. <laughs> so Einstein famously once said that arts and sciences are branches of the same tree. And I think that is, re that is really relevant to Eliasson's practice, especially in this piece. Lee mentioned that his studio is, is full of people from many disciplines and, and he engages with science a lot. And... Uh, his work is, is very famous for making things that are incredibly elusive and difficult to understand approachable by introducing sort of abstract elements that, that maybe soften the blow of, of the subject matter a little bit. So th this, this piece that is about dark matter, is, uh, it, it tackles something that is incredibly elusive and, and by nature hidden, although in terms of the engineering of the work, it's noth nothing is, is hidden. It's all very, very clear. Wouldn't you, would you say? Yeah, and often when Oliver Eliasson talks about his work and he's been consistent throughout all his work where he always wants to show the apparatus, he wants to show you how this, um, how it's made. So the illusion is completely, tra well, there isn't an illusion. The effect is made visible. You can, you can walk this side, you, you know, when you're in the middle, it's, um, and you put it really beautifully when we were talking about the work the other day, is that when you stand in the center of it, it becomes an opaque black mass. So you read it as a single form, but then as you move and circumnavigate the, the work and move around it, it, it becomes many, you, know, you can see it inverts all of us. It captures everything in the room. It's panoptic. It holds everything in its mirrored gaze and it becomes multiple or parallel universes. And Oliver Eliasson was interested in some recent findings that said, you know, 27% of the universe is made up of, of dark matter, but dark matter is this, uh, 
you know, the strange thing that has no definition that, you know, you only know it's there because it's not there, you only, it's because it, can you talk about what you're saying the other day? Yeah, so, I, so um, I, I think there are a few things that point to the existence of dark matter. Is One of them is that um, Franz Zwicky, who's a Swiss astronomer, he, he uh, determined that our galaxy is, the stars in our galaxy, the, the outer stars ought to spin a lot faster than the ones closer to the centre. However, they don't. They seem to be spinning at the same rate. And ordinary physics can't explain why those stars are not flung out of orbit. And that was, that's when um, scientists start to, started to entertain the idea that there's something else there that they can't see. There's something else that accounts for, yeah, I think it's something like five times the amount of, of ordinary matter um, uh, that, is, that is anchoring uh, everything in place. And so, uh, yeah, we, we, as, as, you, as you view the work from, from one point, it, it, it becomes, it comes alive and you see yourself in it and you see the myriad of iterations of, uh, of, of, of the visible spectrum and then, and then of course you shift into the middle and all of a sudden everything disappears and um, that's why it's just so... Absorbed into a black matter mass. <laughs> it's just, yeah. So I, th I think it's just a, a really beautiful, successful way of talking about something that's incredibly difficult to tackle in a very simple manner but, but achieved through a very elegant and sophisticated uh, feat of engineering, really. Yeah, and I think that the, you know, the apparatus um, and revealing all of that and and sort of giving to all of us, to the viewers, uh, a sense of how how it's made, is what Olaf Eliasson has said is at the heart of his practice that he he loves to be able to to see people sensing or that moment of recognition of how you know the artwork is made and also that sort of moment of of optical engagement so i think it's an amazing sort of conundrum you know to do something which is all about making everything in the room visible but then also at the next moment you know completely absorbing light and taking light away from it and and dealing with something as intangible and unknowable and invisible as dark matter so I hope, uh, thank you for Lucas for um, coming on this little sojourn with me and thank you all, all of you here for coming with us. We've gone many places tonight. Thank you so much for coming to the talk. Thank you Lucas for all your research and wonderful interpretation of the work. And, uh, and, and thank you to the incredible curator Lee Robb. Thank you. <laughs>